You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and wow, can, can you believe it? We've been around... For six years now, six years, six years of interviews with black designers and developers and technologists and digital creators from all over the world. 2018 was a really big year for Revision Path, and I want to talk, you know, just a bit about everything that's happened. Some of it you know about, some of it you don't. Um, I'll also talk a little bit about what's coming up in the future. And later on in the episode, you'll hear a discussion with me, uh, Glitch CEO Anil Dash, and Matt Mitchell, uh, the founder of Crypto Harlem, which was recorded at this year's State of the Internet 2019 on February 28th. But first, let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. You know, there's three things that sets designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook Design's work has impact at scale, including your friends and family or people from the other side of the globe. Facebook design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Did you know that MailChimp sends 6 billion emails a week and helps millions of customers in over 175 countries? With millions of customers also comes millions of insights, so you can get really powerful data on your campaigns and your ads, you can get personalized advice for your next marketing move, I mean, whether you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, you really should give MailChimp a try. Check them out at MailChimp.com. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, let's start the show. So like I said before, 2018 was a really big year for Revision Path. I feel like I say that every year but every year revision path does get bigger and better in different ways um i'll say over the past year one of the big things was that we expanded our distribution to both iHeartRadio and spotify which was great uh, spotify i think now is maybe the second biggest source of where we get uh hits from the first of course being apple podcast but then apple podcast is the largest directory so that makes sense um, also, back in February or so last year, we were included as part of the Beyond Change Summit in Basel, Switzerland. That was really cool, seeing how episodes and things that we talked about on the show were being used out there in the world to help, you know, affect change and things like that, which is really great. Uh, of course, our anniversary is always in February. We celebrated our fifth anniversary back then. And we did our very first roundtable episode that month, which was on Black Panther. I'll put a link uh, in the show notes in case you missed that, but I think that was a really good conversation. We talked about doing some more roundtable type episodes in the future, 
I know I sort of teased on Twitter maybe doing one around Boomerang, uh, which is the new series on BET. I'm not sure if we're going to do that yet, but, you know, stay tuned. We might have some interesting things coming up in the future. Uh, in April of last year, I won the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary from AIGA. That was really that was a huge just sort of career milestone, but also it was good because I won it for the show. It was because I've been able to talk to so many great designers and developers and technologists and stuff that I was recognized with uh, such an honor. I was a co-honor. I received it with Allison Arief. So both of us were in New York City. We're at the gala. We're able to uh, take pictures together. And, you know, it was it was a really fun time. You know, it's interesting, like when you sit at home and you watch awards events and you're like, oh, those people get up on stage and they say whatever, whatever. Um, it's a much different experience actually being at an event like that where the drinks are flowing and everyone's dressed up. And I think that the speeches get better as the night goes on because the alcohol settles in. And I was fortunate enough to give the final speech of the night when I received my award. So that was really fun. So following that, you know, one thing that I really wanted to do with Revision Path was to expand the coverage on our blog. You know, we had a blog last year. We've had a blog for a while now. Uh, we don't have one now, but that's because we've moved over here to Glitch. But back when we had just, you know, the regular website, we had a blog. We hired three design writers, Sella Lewis, Dwight Hall, and Katie Steed Jensen. And they really wrote some fantastic really fabulous pieces. Um, Sella in particular, you know, she put together a fantastic oral history about the organization of black designers. I'll put a link down in the show notes so you can check that out. Really, really great. We talked to former members and staff, including the former vice president of OBD, Leon Lawrence III. We talked to the former executive director of OBD, Shauna Stallworth. And it was a really good look at an organization which a lot of black designers of a certain age, I would say maybe, I don't know, 35 and up, uh, really was uh, a big thing in their kind of development as designers, but now is something which is sort of a shell of its former self. So it was really good to kind of learn more about the history of the organization, see how it started, see where it is right now. I'll put a link, like I said, in the show notes so you can check that out. We also launched a design advice column called Ask Saida. That was with designer and entrepreneur Saida Mitchum. You might have to be a long time fan of the show to remember Saida. Saida was episode, I think, 27, way back in the day. Um, and actually, when we did that episode, it was also an announcement because she had a website called Inspiring Black Designers, and we merged. That was sort of like the merger announcement that episode. So her site merged with Revision Path. Um, she wrote for the website for a while, took some time off, and then came back and did this great advice column for a few months, which I really wish we could have kept that going because I don't see any other type of advice things like that in design magazines or blogs or anything like that. And people have questions and they don't really know who to ask when it comes to career or you know, what to do about projects and what to do about clients. And so I really enjoyed having an outlet and of course having Saida be the one to head that up was really great. We celebrated our 250th interview back in July. That was with Julian Alexander, a Grammy award-winning art director. Make sure you check that episode out in case you haven't. Um, and one thing that we did sort of closer to the holidays is that we experimented again with doing a merch store. 
You know, Revision Path has had a really contentious relationship with merch. We've had people that have requested that they want it. We put it together, we get a store up, and then people end up not really purchasing it. It's a really sort of weird thing. So we decided to do it around the holidays just as a pop-up shop. We also tied it into our holiday gift guide. So that was something that was really fun to do. One of the things that happened last year was that we eventually ended up leaving Patreon. So one thing that has kind of stuck with Revision Path throughout the years is that we've always had some type of a community fundraising apparatus to keep things going. Yes, we do have sponsors, you know, Facebook, Google Design, MailChimp, but we also have sponsors from the community and they get to give their feedback directly on episodes. They can ask questions for guests, things of that nature. Sponsors tend to be very hands off. Sponsors tend to say, we really like what you're doing. Here's a check. Keep doing it. Uh, whereas our community patrons are the ones that really kind of see what's going on, you know, day by day, week by week, etc. And on Patreon, we had amassed, I think, about 40 or so patrons at the most. And they were getting not only a special private patrons-only podcast where I would update them every two weeks on things that were going on, but they got to listen to episodes early. They got, you know, some free swag and other gifts and things like that. But eventually, we just started to wean off of Patreon. We saw that the platform is just not good for creators of color. It's just not. Uh, it's something that I've addressed with Patreon. It's certainly something that I've addressed uh, even to people who work at Patreon about that. And I'll, I'll tell you, the clincher for me to decide to wean Revision Path off of Patreon, off that platform, was actually being at XOXO Fest in September of last year talking to people who work at Patreon, explaining everything that I've went through, and them saying, yeah, you should probably take a break, which was, I guess, <laughs> what I needed to hear. Uh, we were putting a lot of work into Patreon. Uh, for those of you who are listening, who were patrons last year, you know that I was continually putting in work with trying to grow the patronage, trying to provide value there. And it just ended up being something that wasn't a great return on its investment. Like I said, we have our sponsors and that's great, but really, the goal for me to have these community patrons was to have direct kind of access to the audience and the people that are listening. One thing about podcasting is that it can be a pretty solitary venture. Unless you're hearing directly from people that write you or you read reviews, or maybe you see some social media love, it's kind of hard to tell how people feel about the podcast from week to week or whatever the frequency is that you release your episodes. So the point of doing Patreon was not only to get their feedback, but also to see what they want to see, to learn what topics they want to have talked about, what guests they want to see. You know, the patrons that were contributing via Patreon really had the opportunity to shape and mold the show as it went on. And, you know, unfortunately, it just ended up not being the best platform for that. I mean, Patreon had issues with security, issues with payments, and it just ended up not being a place that I felt like I wanted to keep using. It always seemed to be a bit of a learning curve for people to understand how to use Patreon, how to take advantage of all the different updates and the lens clips, and just there was just a bunch of stuff. Uh, it just seemed like it was too much. Um, it certainly was too much for me to keep doing by myself, and so I was glad to kind of get rid of it. And then, you know, the thing that happened really near the end of the year is that we became a part of Glitch Media, which Glitch, of course, as you know, is my employer. I'm the head of media at Glitch now. And Revision Path is one of the offerings that we have in our media network. 
And so I'm really glad to be able to not only bring this under the glitch umbrella, but to now also have a team that can help out with this. So it's not just me doing all of the work anymore. Now we've got a new editor. We're going to have new producers soon. Uh, it's going to be really great. So I hope you all will get a chance to, uh, to welcome them once they come onto the show and everything. And uh, yeah, that'll be, that'll be pretty fun. So let's talk about future stuff. There's stuff that's coming up uh, in the future for Revision Path that I'm really excited about that I just want to give you all a bit of a introduction to. So one of the big things is that we really plan on doing more events for Revision Path. If you remember, we did our first live event back in November 2017 here in Atlanta. And that was on Facebook. It was a really great event. We had Tori Hargrove, Carla Cole, uh, Jill Newsbaum and Ian Spalter from Instagram. Really great event. Had about 75 people there. It was pretty good. Uh, a lot of people asked when we were going to have another event. That hadn't really happened yet. Um, but uh, as you'll hear coming up, we did partner with forums at Civic Hall and Facebook for the State of the Internet 2019. So definitely look out for more events from Revision Path in the future. And let us know what kind of events you would like to see. I mean, Hit us up on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Talk to us. Let us know. Also, we are now coming up on our 300th episode. 300 episodes. That is, that's huge for any kind of media. Television, radio, whatever. So especially for podcasts, that's a lot. I think it's going to be around like late June, early July when we have our 300th episode, but it's, it's coming pretty soon. And so to that end, one thing that we're going to do is create an archive podcast feed. It'll maybe be the first 50 or 100 episodes or so. Um, Apple Podcasts only lists the first 300 episodes in a podcast feed. And I think now we're at like 287 or something like that because we've got a few bonus episodes. Um, I know Design Matters uh, with Debbie Millman does this. So we'll get it straightened out pretty soon and work out how we have an archive feed and let you all know. So if there are past episodes that you've missed, you can just go to that archive feed and then we'll have the regular feed still crank out new episodes every week. Also, and hopefully this is gonna announce fully in the future, but I just wanna tease this a little bit. Um, for the past few years, we've been working behind the scenes on something a little special with the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, like I said, it's been in the works for a while now. Once we're ready to talk about it, I certainly will let you hear about it, but it is it is truly some big monumental news. I cannot wait for the full announcement. I just can't really say it yet, but I just want to let you know we have been working with them for a while. We've been in talks, so uh, stay tuned for that. And finally, you know, there's a personal project of mine, which I just launched very recently. It's not affiliated with Revision Path. It's a personal project that hopefully you all will get behind and support. Um, I'm working with Envision. Uh, for those of you who might know, Envision is a company that uh, creates design tools, Envision Studio, Craft, etc. Um, and I'm working with them on an anthology of design writing called Recognize. Uh, Recognize will feature indigenous people and people of color. Uh, that's what I'm calling the next generation of emerging design voices. And it's going to be great. It's going to be really great. So we're seeking original essays about design, design culture, or the design profession. Now, these essays can come in any format. It can be a narrative, it can be a critique, a manifesto, an argument, and they can be expository, they can be descriptive, they can be whatever you like. It's really up to the author to determine how they will kind of craft the essay. 
Now for the first volume of Recognize, all of the essays are going to share one single word as a theme, and the word is space. Now it's up to the author again to determine how they'll incorporate that into their submission. I mean, space is something that has many meanings, many interpretations, so be creative and have fun with it. You know, essays are should be no more than 3,000 words for submissions. Uh, and please don't exceed the word count if you want to be if you want to be a part of this. We want to try to keep it pretty concise so people can check it out easily online. Um, if you go over that, we won't uh, consider your submission. Sorry. Um, we especially though encourage submissions from LGBTQIA+ and gender diverse writers, writers with disabilities, and writers from religious, ethnic, and cultural minorities. So if you want to be a part of this, if you want to submit an essay, go to recognize.design. Again, that's recognize.design. I'll put a link in the show notes. Check out the about page for the full rules for submission, as well as our no harm guidelines. And please submit your essay. Submissions are going to be due on April 15th. You've got plenty of time, a little bit over a month and a half or so. So please submit something. I'd love to hear from you. So as you can see, there's a lot of great stuff that's coming up in our future. Now, let's head on over to Civic Hall for the State of the Internet 2019 and my recorded conversation with Anil Dash and Matt Mitchell. And with that, I will hand over the mic to Matt Mitchell. Hey, hello, my fellow internet users. <laughs> Welcome to State of the Internet. Hey, I'm Matt Mitchell, and I do a couple things. I'm just going to go over that real quick before I break into my state of the internet talk. I founded this thing called Crypto Harlem, and that is uh, teaching folks in, um, everyone in New York, but really folks in the inner city, really black folks, about um, the all sides of technology, the good and the bad, and also how the, the bad tends to be kind of metered out and harmful to those folks, what they can do to protect themselves, whether it's learning circumvention technology, learning about cyber, you know, information security, things like that. And I'm the director of digital safety and privacy for a nonprofit that's based in Berlin, Germany called Tactical Technology Collective. And uh, they do a lot of great work. If you went to this event called The Glassroom, which was in New York last year, they're the ones who threw that thing. So, and I saw them you nodding out there. That's great. Okay. So let's jump in. So uh, we're talking about the state of the internet and we're looking at where are we? It's 2019, we're kind of kicking it off in New York City, home of the uh, rest in peace, formerly uh, uh, HQ2 space, right? Invisible space. <laughs> Although I heard, you know, our governor was on the phone begging for the, please take us back. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, in all seriousness, um, what does the internet look like for us in the future? What does the future of technology look like? And uh, I'm going to talk about some things that I'm seeing and what I think when we might be heading towards. I think like in 2019, we have kind of like a, a fork in the road and we have to either go one way or the other. And one way that we could go is a way where tech companies kind of like run the show, right? And then there's another way we can go and that's where the people run the show, the humans, right? Now it's weird because when you open up a tech company, they're actually humans inside, right? <laughs> I know, it's weird. You know, but um, I think that what's more, very important for us to do is to try to see, like, why are there two roads and why are they not convening in the middle? Why don't they benefit each other, et cetera? You know, in the past, what we've seen is there's this thing called Disrupt Harlem, and I was there speaking to young folks in, in Harlem, in my neighborhood, and I was telling them about uh, opportunities for them. 
And I asked him, like, how many people do you think, like, work at Twitter? And his kids were like, I don't know, 100,000 people? I don't know, you know? And I was like, well, you know, I think globally you're looking at maybe, like, in the thousands of people. Let's say it's, like, 3,000 or something like that. And I was like, well, how many of those people do you think are black folks? And then they were like, I don't know, maybe half of them, I don't know, 10% or whatever. And I think, like, that's part of the problem is when you look at the actual numbers, they're a lot smaller than what you would think, right? A lot of these tech companies, you're going to see just entire staff reports. Um, there's an EEO1 report. And when you, that's a report that tech companies either publish online or uh, they can choose to do that, but they give to the U.S. government. And it actually has, instead of like 10% or 5%, it's the actual numbers of people in different positions. And uh, when you look at a lot of the tech companies and Reveal uh, Center for Investigative Reporting looked at a lot of these companies, you'll see that the numbers don't meet any kind of requirement for what would look like a diverse organization, let alone like uh, engineering or executives, just any kind of marginalized group, very low. I think at one point, Twitter had, I think it was like 70 something black folks working there total, right? And uh, I think like they're just not quite at the number where we're thinking when you have thousands of employees. And I like to wonder, like, how does that happen? And how do these tech firms, these companies, not look like the people who use them? We use these tech firms. We use their um, software. We use their technology. and uh, But we don't ask of them to represent us. A lot of us are consuming the technology on our mobile phones, but you can't develop a program on a mobile phone, right? You're not someone who can construct a technology that's something that you can control and look for, right? Also, what we're looking at is a day and age where tech firms and, you know, they're influencing us in our politics. Something Tactical Tech has is this uh, data and politics area of our website where we do a lot of research and we look at these influencing uh, companies. And we found over 250 organizations that work with political platforms and different governments across the uh, globe. And they're kind of like the Cambridge Analytica's of the world, and they are trying to influence you through the platforms that you use, whether that's uh, Twitter or, or Google or whatever, right? And in that influence, they've been able to uh, kind of guarantee certain outputs. You know, we can sway an election. We can change people's uh, viewpoints. And that's something that uh, we need to really be careful of, because it's not just fake news or misinformation. It's people's lives that, are, um, that can be lost. In places like in um, India with WhatsApp, we see like a lot of innocent people who are um, misinformation had said this person's guilty of some crime, and then a mob decided to like find justice, and then they stone that person or hang that person. Right? In places like in Myanmar, where the government said this is a page that's really popular, that's uh, the military. We're going to take over this page. We're going to use that. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who live here are reading about these uh, snipers and these military units, and we're going to use that to kind of change the way that they think about uh, a marginalized group in our country, right? And a lot of people point this takeover of um, of this kind of propaganda on social media to what led to uh, genocides in Myanmar, right? And you see, um, you know, some platforms have said like, look, we weren't designed to have any safeguards to protect ourselves from these things happening. We, didn't, we weren't designed to, um, to help people not fall for this. And what we're going to do now is we're going to um, you know, ban accounts. Myanmar, the head of military accounts, um, hundreds of people's accounts were, were banned off of platforms like Facebook. right? But I think, like, how do we as people prevent this from happening? Um, and I think it comes from like, learning about 
what has happened in the past and trying to push for, for positive change, right? There are groups like um, Color of Change, which is a racial justice organization, and I, I used to work there in a 10-month fellowship, helping them with their digital security. And they try to work with platforms to diversify their workforce because they feel like, you know, if there are more of us at these platforms, there'll be less um, chance for them to kind of go off the rails. And uh, they also try to work with platforms by pointing out where they're doing wrong. Last year, a New York Times report found that Color of Change was targeted by a, um, a platform that paid for a lobbyist group, Definers Public Affairs, right, to go after them, research them, do some opposition research and try to uh, create like a misinformation campaign against them and other groups that were saying, look, we need to be careful about these different technology platforms, you know, the ones that we, we use and put our information on that can be used against us. And uh, it's kind of strange that a nonprofit that's just trying to educate people gets targeted by like a, a huge um, lobbyist campaign. But that's the day and age that we're, that we're in right now. Right. So um, what can we do as regular Internet users to fight against, let's say, misinformation campaigns, to fight against um, people trying to influence us, to change the way that we think and we work, etc.? And I have a lot of faith because I look at things like the... Um, Amazon HQ2 debacle, right? And I see something that kind of says, like, as regular people, we have a voice and we, we can actually make change happen. And we don't have to have this kind of defeatist attitude that the platforms have to always exist the way they are. They always have to be staffed the way they are. They always have to employ the same people that they do. They always have to fight for the same causes the way they do. We can ask for anything we want because at the end of the day, it's our information that fuels these platforms. It's our data that they monetize. And at Tactical Tech, they have this thing called the Data Detox Kit, which I would recommend that you all try to look for. And with that Data Detox Kit, it's just kind of like an eight-day detox, kind of like a health detox. And you can go through it and you can say, like, you know, maybe I'm going to use a little bit less Twitter today. You know, maybe I'm just going to not like and, uh, and share that on Facebook today, right? And it walks you through, like, little things you can do. We also have on, at Tactical Tech on our website information on politics and elections and research that shows things like links in the Brazilian election to use of WhatsApp to sway the electorate. And by looking at things like this and understanding how it works, you can be more critical about what you're seeing on these platforms. And I don't think that leaving a platform is a bad idea. And I don't think that it's um, impossible. I think that, you know, we have a lot of information on how to do that. There's an article on Tactical Text Platform that talks about, let's say you wanted to leave Facebook, how you could go about doing that. What if you didn't want to leave, but you just wanted to change your privacy settings and, and have less of your data that's shared? You can do that too. And I wanted to talk about the work that I do in Harlem, at Crypto Harlem. One thing that we found is a lot of social media platforms are being monitored by law enforcement, and that targets folks who have a high incident of contact with law enforcement. And if you're living in the inner city, if you're living in the Bronx or living in Harlem, black and brown youth are found gathered up through these gang conspiracy charges, right? And gang conspiracy charges require very little evidence. Just having someone's number on your phone or just having a like on someone's Facebook post is enough for you to be considered a, a suspect. There are cases where someone in Harlem, this guy, Jelani Henry, lives around the corner, and uh, Jelani was in Rikers for 18 months waiting for his day in court over such a charge, right? Connected to social media and uh, a phone number, right? 
And only because he decided not to sign anything, only because he decided not to take any pleas, was he just let out at the end of that time. And when we think about like how did that happen, all of our platforms, whether we, they're search engines like Google or whether they're um, social media platforms like Facebook, they have an inroad, a backdoor, a window for law enforcement to use them. And there aren't many like rules or, or um, regulations on that. There aren't many challenges to how that works. So if you go to Facebook and you use Facebook and you write posts, whether they're private and only between you and another party or whether they're something on your wall, all of that could be used against you. And it's not something that your defense has access to, but something that a, a prosecution would. When you go to sites like um, facebook.com slash records or lers.google.com, that's the Google version of it, you'll see a page that's like, hi, law enforcement, this is how you could use our platform to access data, find information on users, etc. Right? And I think that that's something that a lot of users aren't aware of, and it's something that's not used universally, metered out universally against all users. What we find is a lot of young people, a lot of folks who live in the inner city, are, this is used to kind of prey on them. But uh, I'm not just trying to talk about like negative things and uh, some of the, the bad things about technology. The platforms do have the occasional like positive, like you know, that's a good thing to see, right? And one thing that I think that's encouraging is platforms having encryption on their platform, I guess, right? Whether, like, if you're using Facebook Messenger, it has a private chat, which is encrypted. It uses, like, the same crypto that um, Signal uses. But it's not the default message. It's not, like, the default way it is. There's a lot of talk of uh, Twitter one day encrypting your direct messages, right? And it's only through by having that privacy and by knowing that what you've posted and what you've shared and what you've created cannot be accessed by another entity or another group, can you really be safe um, online? All right. Okay. You're done. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> I use my two minutes. All right. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Woo. Matt is modest because the work he does is so important, especially with people that are sort of most vulnerable. So I'm very appreciative to get the chance to follow him. And thank you to everybody for having me here tonight. Did y'all get something to eat? So I'm the CEO of Glitch. We provided the food. So I want you to eat. I'm a... I'm, I'm an Asian parent. I need to feed you. Food is very important. I want to make sure everybody's feeling good. There's a couple things I want to get a chance to go over tonight. And I think it, so much of it is grounded actually in, in the ideas that Matt has brought up. And we think about, you know, state of the internet, we look forward. I want to go back a little bit because I think it makes sense to sort of look back at where we've come from. And especially, you know, Civic Hall feels like one of those places where this is a community I've been connected into for a long time. 10 or 12 years ago was the rise of what we started to call, you know, civic tech. That was old enough where people called it Gov 2.0. Does anybody remember that vintage? Yeah. You put like a point oh on things. That was, that was the hotness for like five minutes. So that era has fortunately passed. But what's most interesting to me is the people that were drawn to engaging with what are the civic and social impacts of this technology were seen as a little bit out there. Right. Especially if like me, I had been a programmer. I had been somebody designing apps, building software. I worked in Silicon Valley and I left and I came back home to New York for all the reasons that you do that, not just pizza. And, you know, I came back and I, I just sort of felt like, am I throwing my whole career away? Am I going to be ever working again in this industry if I say that what we do matters in the world and that what the impact it has on society matters and that maybe we should have a little bit of regulation and maybe we should have a little bit of mindset, you know, for, to what's going to happen to the people that actually use these apps. And I was frankly terrified and I know I was not alone. I think most people 
who had that reckoning, even in those early years, not just 10, 12 years ago, but 20 years ago, and as recently as a few years ago, felt like if I speak up on the ethical, social, maybe even moral impacts of the apps and the tech we use, am I saying I can no longer be part of the industry and part of this enormous wealth that's being created and this enormous opportunity that's being created? Because we did also see, by the way, the richest companies in the history of the world were being built, which is a nice thing to want to be proximate to. They give you free snacks. So <laughs> that was something that you know jumped out to me. And the interesting thing is to now look at this through the lens of 10 years later. Well, we're at the end of the beginning. Like, I don't have to make the case to you about this stuff mattering in the world. Even if you hadn't just heard Matt articulate it so well just now, you would say, yeah, of course. Of course, the apps that I'm using, of course, the information that I'm sharing, of course, the data that's being collected about me is impacting my life. Of course, these technologies are skewing what's happening in media, in politics, in culture. And that represents a great milestone. There's a big shift because it used to be if you were the person talking about this stuff, if you were somebody that cared about this stuff, you were chicken little. You were the one saying the sky is falling and they wouldn't believe you. And so that's a big shift. And I want to reflect on that because I think that's something that we almost take for granted. But shifts in culture that large don't happen by accident. They don't happen casually. They don't happen on their own. There is no intrinsic momentum. I don't think I actually believe that the moral arc of the universe bends towards good. I think we bend it ourselves. And so I think that's something that is really important to reflect on. The good news is we don't have to explain the technology can make things worse. <laughs> the bad news is it's because we can see it. And, you know, I think about that and this crowd in particular is mindful of that change, but maybe we don't always reflect on how it happened. And one of the moments that jumps out to me most is two years ago now, there was the tech won't build it movement, right? And this was the first time that I could recall seeing the sort of consumer internet industry, the people who build the apps, who build the technology, gathering together and saying, in this case, we won't build a religious registry. We won't be part of building a system that leads to knowable injustices. And we learned from history. We learned from IBM providing mainframes uh, to the Nazis in the 40s and thinking, wow, that was the worst thing we could possibly do with technology. Let's not echo that again. And the interesting thing about this is this was not top down. This was ordinary workers. This was the people who code, who design, who work at every tech company out there, pretty much every major company and a lot of minor ones. People spoke up. And I mean, you know, I grew up in a union household. My mom worked in union for years. Like I worked in construction with trades, people that were in unions. Like this is the mechanism is not new. This is an ancient mechanism. But to see it in tech and to see people banding together where they had been really, really somewhat militantly anti-organization for a long time. We don't belong to things. We don't join things unless it's a Slack channel, right? And so that was a really, really big shift. And it kind of happened casually and in a very nerdy way. You had to go to GitHub and make a pull request, which is like the arcane incantation of belonging ship to some classes of coders. I struggled to do it, but like I know how to do it. And so I could put my name on the list. And... Now, they made it too hard to participate, but it was just easy enough that a lot of people could put their name on a list and say, I'm not going to be party to this. And that was a revolutionary moment. That was extraordinary. And probably most people, even in this space, wouldn't be able to rattle off the top of their head. If you think about it, you're like, yeah, I vaguely remember that. And that's very telling. The most dramatic turning points in the history of social tech, civic tech, whatever you want to call it, sort of go a little bit 
underreported. They get, don't get as much attention as they deserve at the moment, and then they fade pretty quickly. Now, a little harder to ignore was the Google walkout. Google walkout was obviously dramatic, but it was the biggest political surprise of last year. And it's seldom framed that way, right? We talk about it in the specifics of the working conditions that people at Google had to endure, particularly non-men at Google, which is right and just, and that is the starting point. But what it represents is the first time there was an organized labor movement at a major technology company. That's radical. That's stunning, right? That's transformative. I mean, we saw labor movements transforming education, public school teachers across America. And we're like, sure, yeah, teachers. Yeah, that's what they do. Like, that's a, like the fact that they were successful was a surprise, but the fact they were organized was not. The same thing happened at Google, and we've kind of already forgotten about it. These are generational changes. These are fantastically huge changes, and the likes of which no technology company has ever seen before. And they had huge, huge impact, direct impact. That thing, without that, the rest doesn't happen. There is no other mechanism that, that, that can change things. And, and, and one of the things that I sort of want to talk about most importantly is we can identify the problems that you know, that Matt gave voice to, that I can articulate. And it's everything from sentencing software that replicates and amplifies the injustices on race and on class that have resulted in the biases in our criminal justice system for decades. It is the, the minor things, right? The, the things that seem a little less serious, but is this photo filter going to work for my face? Is this app going to properly classify these people that I connect to and, and recognize that they're humans, first of all? And also that they are people that are, you know, worthy of being treated as first class users of an application. Like those things are minor. They're small. And the other extreme is the misinformation, is the manipulation, is the thing that leads to whether it is elections being distorted or mass violence taking place. The worst things that humans know how to do each other, technology can help amplify. And so on that incredibly long continuum from does this suit my vanity for my, how I look in this photo filter to are we persecuting vulnerable people. In every single aspect of this, the institutions that we would now rely on to help rein in those problems are not up to the task. If we say, can traditional media and journalism report on these problems, not while they're fiscally being gutted and very few of their staff writers have the technical fluency to be able to report on these things. And also, if they do have that tech fluency, then they'll probably leave journalism and go work at the tech companies. And then, you know, if we say government, is going to rein these things in. How many members of Congress, especially before this last wave of Congress people came in, could install a smart app on their smartphone? Three. Three. Yeah, it's it's like it's one hand. You can count them on one hand, right? And like I think AOC knows how to now. So like we've doubled the number of people that that can install an app on their phone. And so if you don't have that basic level of fluency of like I've got Snapchat on my phone, there is no way you're making fluent policy. And that's something that's extraordinary to think about because you think about if every member of you know, the finance committee in the Senate had said, I've never had a bank account. I don't know how to use an ATM. I don't really know anything about money, but I've got a nephew and he's got a bank account. You would say, you're probably not qualified for this. You're a little out of your depth, right? You will hear that verbatim from people talking about technology. The people who regulate technology will be like, I don't have a smartphone, but I got a nephew and he made a website, right? And they're not even embarrassed. They're not even humiliated. When you can brag about your incompetence, there's a very big problem, right? And of course, that's a broader cultural problem too. But coming all the way back to, yeah, yeah, right. And so there's this challenge that we would rely on 
government, just as we would rely on media to be the watchdogs and to rein in the abuses, but they're not up to the task. And then if we say, you know, I'm a technologist, I I've used to be a decent coder, now I'm pretty bad these days, but I still try. And I probably have the fluency to be able to inform at least a conversation about it, but I'm not going to enough city council meetings and I'm not going to enough state legislature meetings to deal with the volume of policy and regulation that needs to be created. And who is going and volunteering? Are you all going? I hope so. Some of you are. A couple, right? It needs to be every one of us every night to go to the number of conversations that are happening. And so we're going to have to do what in tech we call scaling. We're going to have to have a lot more people participating to make these institutions fluent enough in the technical challenges that they're facing. And that's really, really hard because these are paths that don't cross, right? So often these are very, very siloed. There is a somewhere between contempt and derision is the attitude of most of Silicon Valley towards policymakers and regulators for most of it. There's exceptions, but that's the default stance of a lot of the rank and file. I mean, separate from leadership, people writing code, signers. There's a lot of skepticism. And similarly, there are a lot of people making policy. They're like, it's just an app. It's just tech, right? Like it's nothing new under the sun. It's just faster and a louder version of what we already had, right? We can use TV and radio regulations to regulate this too. So it's a misunderstanding of kind. It's a category error about the conversation that needs to happen. And the same is true for media and journalism as well. And the shocking thing about this is that that disconnect persists. There's some places it's getting better. Obviously, there are people in each of these cohorts that are trying to bridge the gaps. But that disconnect fundamentally still exists even as the problems get more serious. Right. And usually when a problem gets more urgent, people start to come together and they say, let's fix this together. This is one of the places that convenes those conversations. But generally, there aren't enough of those conversations taking place. And they certainly aren't increasing at a pace commensurate to the severity of the problems being caused. So that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about because I'm culpable. Right. I built social platforms 15, 20 years ago. The first time that somebody ever doxed us by publishing our home address was on a platform that I had built and where I had helped create policies where we thought that would be a fair expression of freedom of speech. I felt differently after it was my child that they were publishing the address of. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And I reflect on that every day. There are people that have been made vulnerable due to choices I made and apps that I shipped and put in front of millions of people. And I wasn't even the one that succeeded, right? Like I didn't become a billionaire and nobody uses those tools anymore. So like I skated away, right? They're like, fortunately, the stuff I made is obsolete. I wasn't good at it or ruthless enough or whatever combination of it it takes. So then I'm not as culpable. Um, but I have friends that were there and they did end up on the other side of it. And it's nice because they have like private jets and shit. But the downside is real harm, real harm. Not just, I, this makes me feel creeped out. This person is, you know, making me feel uncomfortable, but real harm. And when we think about those real harms, who's paying that price? A lot of you have seen the recent stories about the people responsible for moderating communities and the incredibly gut-wrenching things that they face. And worse than the problems of moderating the most mortifying content that humans can share with each other is almost the surprise aspect of it, right? Things veer from the banal, the annoying, the trivial, 
to extremely severe. And if you think about, you know, the, the thing that people crave most or pretty much every mammal craves most is that intermittent reward where am I going to get a piece of cheese when I push the button? Intermittent severe emotional punishment is probably the worst thing that we can do to humans. And we're relying on thousands of them at low pay to be really a huge part of the barrier between us and the worst things these platforms can do. And I get it. I ran a team like that, right? And unfortunately, again, we weren't big enough where we had to deal with the worst things all the time. But when we see those things happen, all impulse that we have as technologists that I've had as a technologist has been to say, let's just hire more moderators. Let's use AI. Let's And let's solve this by trying to stuff the cat back into the bag. And it doesn't work that way. The designs have to change at a very, very fundamental level. And I don't just mean better flagging, better reporting, right? The economics of the platforms have to change, right? When we have systems that make more money as they gather more data, that make more money as they get more attention, there have to be really, really fundamental changes. And the good news, there is some good news in this that I can offer you is people are trying to do this. People have always been trying to do this. There is an independent internet. There are independent creators. There are small platforms. There are even moderately sized platforms. There are platforms where people talk about what they're reading or what they're knitting. We're trying to build one where people are just sharing fun little apps. But those of you that are old enough will remember back in the day, GeoCities and, and your Neopets page. And Neopets had some problems, but there weren't like mass waves of Nazis on there. So that's good. <laughs> and what it takes me back to is thinking about where we've solved problems in other domains outside of technology. If we look at what's it going to take to teach our kids well, then we get involved in our schools. We get involved locally. We show up. We have these conversations. We talk to the people that are teaching, and we learn from them too. And in particular, what I think about, and there's analogies of this in art. There's analogies of this about local newspapers, local media. But I did say food is important. And I look at the food we consume. And imagine if you look at your phone right now, how many of the apps on your phone do you know who wrote the code in those apps? Zero, right? Now imagine if the only food you ate was fast food, right? You go to McDonald's and the only food that you ate off of their menu was they told you, well, this is the food that has the highest profit margin for us and you don't get to see the menu and we'll just give it to you and don't worry about it. You eat it. The algorithm has chosen for you the right burger. And we won't tell you about the sourcing of the food. There will be no local food. There will be no farm to table. There will be no going to Whole Foods and seeing who grew the apple that you're eating. None of that stuff. And then that's every meal. It's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Is there any possibility of being healthy with that as your diet? I don't think so. And then I look at my phone. And I look at my tablet. And I look at my PC. And I look at all the things that I have. And I say... There has to be a path forward where some of what we consume digitally is made by people we know, maybe even people who love us. Maybe some of those people are local and not far away and not Silicon Valley, not on the other side of the world. I mean, this is New York City. We are not hurting for creative people. And then to be able to say, what percentage of my diet is that? What percentage of what I consume? What percentage of what I encourage others to use of where I put my investment, my time, my data? are things that are created by people who I trust, who I know, 
who I feel share my values, who have thought about these issues and are building systems that prevent the harms, that anticipate the negative reactions, as opposed to trying to put the cat back in the bag after the fact. I hope that is the diet that we all get to enjoy. Sure. Maurice is going to come up. He's going to join us. I'm lucky I get to have Maurice as a coworker and a colleague, so it's very fun. Um, All right. What's up? Hey, How we doing? Oh, we're doing pretty good. You know. All things considered, round of applause again for both of them. Those are both two great, really great conversations. Can y'all hear? Yeah, we're on. I kind of can't hear myself. But that's okay. So I have some questions for both of you. We'll start off with Anil since she went last. We'll start first with you. All right. So you kind of started off saying that we're basically at the end of the beginning. Mm. And you've been around the internet for a long time. <laughs> I've been around the internet for a long you time. You call me old, right? <laughs> we're both old. All I mean, right. You know, so. What do you think was the tipping point for all of this kind of public perception of tech changing? Mm. I think everybody had a different one. I mean, I think culturally you can't ignore, obviously, the 2016 election is a reckoning for people about how does you know, media manipulation work and how does misinformation work and those things. But I mean, I think everybody had a moment where, you know, they said, why is that ad showing up? How did they know? Right. The first time you saw an ad that was like, how did they know I was looking at that? How did they know I was going to buy a new pair of boots? Mm -hmm. and, and the moment you have that first like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't, I don't understand how this happened and why this is my, on my screen. I think that's, that was the sort of moment and everybody had a version of that in some aspect of life and pretty much a billion people had that experience over the last call it five years. So it's kind of been like a collective reckoning. Yeah. Essentially yeah. we all saw retargeted ads and thought, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Or some, something like that. Just some aspect of like this surprised me in a way I didn't expect in a very personal way. Okay. All right. Matt, I've got a question for you. Near the end of your talk, you were sort of saying that we have the option to sort of elect out of mm -hmm. using some services, you know, some might go as far as saying it's a boycott. You know, some would maybe take it that way and say, oh, we're going to stage these tech boycotts, et cetera. You know, certainly I think we've seen that with several platforms over the past maybe year and a half or so. They don't work. The tech boycotts don't work in general. I mean, I think it's something certainly where we're, we want people to know that it is an option, but in mass, it doesn't seem to really sort of move the needle. Why do you think people are still doing them if this change doesn't happen? I think that uh, directly affected people will always fight for liberation. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm vegan, right? You don't have to be vegan, but I am. And I'm not having a milk boycott. It's just not something I drink. And, uh, you know, and I believe in animal rights, but meat, I'm not having a meat boycott. It's just I choose not to eat that because it's not good for me, right? And there's the first thing that people tell you is that these things always existed and you must always use them. And one generation will pass and then they'll accept it. And then a second generation will pass and it will cement that, but it is not true. And these boycotts don't work because they're not boycotts. It's not a boycott, right? It's like, stop using this because it's bad. Get crack out of our neighborhood. 
period. So this is interesting because when you said about their, you know, boycotts can happen, that was the first thing you said where I was like, I don't know if I agree, right? And it jumped out to me because I look at, if I say, I don't want to do anything with Google, I don't want to be involved, I delete my account, do whatever, mm-hmm. but I still use email. And you're on Gmail on the other end. And Google's still got my email. There is no, they can't have my data, right? If I'm participating in the digital world, they're going to have an outline of me, a shadow of me, right? Some version of this. And this is the thing I worry about is the like, and especially for marginalized communities. If I say I'm I'm opting out of all that, well, it's like, all right, well, how are you going to get a job if you're not on LinkedIn? How are you going to open your, your network to connect to opportunity, right? Like that's the thing I worry about for me of like, I can object to, like, there are communities where misinformation is spread on WhatsApp, period. You need to talk about some of them. But my cousins in India are on WhatsApp, and that that is what it is. And, like, we didn't, like, you know, they grew up without running water. Like, to be able to connect to something on the other side of the world to see baby pictures, I'm like, look, I'm going to be there. And so the cost of, like, what would it be like to go back to being disconnected from them is too high. So this is almost this coercive effect of your network I totally agree. Economically, it's not a boycott at all because it's not about the economics of it. That's not how that works. Well, I would say real quick, when it comes to LinkedIn, they're not hiring us anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you can, I mean, I'll show you the numbers. Yeah, no, mean, you can work yeah, be a PhD math, out of MIT. You are not getting that job. Mm-hmm. So, um, Sounds fire. Look, WhatsApp mm. or nothing, that is not true. There's many alternatives. Yeah. And people will come up with their own alternatives headquartered in their own cities, yeah. helping their own people. When I look at people who are South Asian, I'm not seeing moderators who are going to see the most despicable of content and get paid nothing and feel like they won the lottery to get that job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, look, you have your own capital, you have your own Great. resources, your own community, start your own thing. Yeah. Let's open up that, you know, glitch Indian office yeah, sure. and take over and get... Well, it's, you know, it's wild so. because, you know, when I would go to India as a kid, everything, they didn't have Coca-Cola, they had thumbs up. Yeah. It's because like, we're not going to have Western companies come in and create soda for us. We're going to make our own sugar water, right? Mm-hmm. And it was such an interesting thing where it's like, yeah, we, like, we rot our own teeth. But they, they, they mm-hmm. went into like, you know, ownership and equity mm-hmm. as a starting point because it was such a recent thing for them to be independent. Yeah. Thumbs up, man, all day. Yeah, it's good though. Question for both of you, uh, mostly for Matt, but both of you can answer this. Uh, Matt, you mentioned Color of Change as one organization Mm -hmm. that is out there kind of, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk as it relates to sort of, you know, pointing out the the fact that tech needs to be fixed in these certain areas. Are there other organizations or people or agencies that we need to kind of be on the lookout for? Oh, my goodness. It's a crazy long list, you know. Plug away. Yeah. Okay. So, um. We have Color of Change, which is a civil rights organization that uses technology to kind of uplift all of us. So definitely join their mailing list because that's how they work. And, yeah. and it's free. And you're going to get one email from them this year that's going to be worth signing up. So and if you're it. on social media, follow Rashad Robinson there, director. He's incredible. And he's an amazing dresser. Rashad, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, that man, he's dripping. He's yeah. got it. Then there's a group called Code 2040. And they're like, look, in the year 2040, we want these tech companies to just change a little bit to look like the actual people. And they're like, look, we need to get more people of color in these companies, and this is our path and our mission, and we're going to do it. By 2040, we're going to have all these people coding, and they're going to work at these tech companies. Change from within type of thing, right? There's a group called Dev Color, and they're like, look, we're the black engineers at Facebook, at Google, at all these places, and we're one of few. And the hard thing isn't hiring an engineer of color, right? 
I mean, even though you look at the stats and you think it's impossible to hire a black woman, right? The real hard thing is keeping them. Yeah. Because you face so many microaggressions day after day that you end up running and going to like nonprofit sphere or something like that, or the government. There's a lot of people I know who work in the government who are like, yeah, I used to work at Twitter as an engineer. It just, it just didn't feel welcoming. I had to go, you know, whether you're um, LGBTQ, gender nonconforming, trans, you're black, you're Latino, you're whatever you are, you're different. You're reminded of that difference, even though you're told this is a welcoming space. And uh, I think like that's what makes people drop out and leave. So that's something that they're doing, Dev Caller. Let's see, there's... um was well, that so? Girls who code, of course. Yeah. Yes, They're black girls code. Black girls code. Blah blah code. Curl code code code. Right. Um, <laughs> Identity that. code. Yeah, right? which is awesome. Let's see. There's um, hack the hood, which does a lot of work. Yeah. We'll see in like the um, in the West Coast, but. They're, they're trying to get people from Silicon Valley, from the tech firms, to volunteer their time to educate folks in the inner city. And that's half the hood. They're also, they're doing a lot of good. It rhymes, right? I mean, there's a lot of these groups. There's this insane number of them. I wrote this tweet and I was just trying to do a black history tweet for all the groups that do this. And it was, uh, I was like, wait, this is too so many. many. Yeah, yeah, it's too many. <laughs> and, um, the problem is like, even though there's so many, we still hear, well, there's a pipeline problem. We still hear like, well, where are these people? We can't find them, you know? And um, I think that that's, there's a reason why we hear that, because the face it's coming from always looks the same. I'll also throw out the Design Justice Collective is another good mm-hmm. one for any right. designers. And there's this great blog, uh, Revision Path on the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Revision Path interviews people. You can, like, yeah. you know, just catch up with people who are doing this work day after day and see where your, your stories align. So, you know. Thank you. You know, downloaders. <laughs> Look at the plug. I like that. Today is also our sixth anniversary. So hey. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Man, six years in the game. So, Anil, let's go back to two points that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on. You said that few people in positions of power, you know, government, et cetera, are fluent in how tech makes us vulnerable. I think if any of us have seen the hearings with Congress trying to test, or Mark Zuckerberg is testifying to Congress, we're like, what are they talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but you also said that many institutions have to help to fix the internet. It's not just a kind of singular solution. Right. How do we connect the dots so those people can help out the ones that are in power? Well, you know, I think one answer is to like people that are nominally fluent in the contemporary world, right? Like that exist on Earth in 2019, which doesn't, sorry. So this just is like, there's so many members of Congress where you're like, are, are you even on this planet? Like, are you in current reality? And and then and then on top of that, to be sort of technically fluent. And you do look at the new wave of folks that are coming in where you're like, at least they have, like I said, used a smartphone, engaged in the world. So then it's possible to contextualize, oh, well, here are the challenges and to have them sort of speak to it. I think, you know, voting is never, especially in a time of so much disenfranchisement, going to be the only answer, but I think it's a, it's a pillar, like it is one of the, you know, core things we can do. I think a lot of it is old fashioned civic engagement. And, you know, I, I say it glibly, but I mean it very sincerely, like going to city council meetings, going to community board meetings, going to school board meetings, talking about what you know, where like everybody in this room has a level of technical fluency that is orders of magnitude better than most of the people that create the policy that shapes our lives. And you might feel like, oh, well, there's somebody here in this room who's a great programmer and I don't know all that. It doesn't matter. Like what you know is enough. You showing up is enough. 
And it's hard. It's hard to make time. You know, I, I think that's one of the things where like, you know, for me, I'm bouncing like, am I going to have dinner with my son tonight? Or am I going to go to like a bunch of folks that are yelling about parking spots and talk about technology? And you, you know, you got to at least sometimes you got to do it. But if everybody did that, like once a month, one night a month, uh, it would change incredibly rapidly. And I think kind of to piggyback off that point, one thing you'll notice even when trying to sort of find some of these spaces or go to some of these places, like the design is not that great. They don't really have things together, but that's often because they don't have people like the folks in this audience that are there to help yeah, them. Yeah. So speaking of what you said about, you know, you go and you're kind of automatically the expert, not saying that it's a big ego thing, but <laughs> just consider it. You would be surprised how even just a little bit of knowledge would go yeah. a long way on a civic level. Yeah. So question for the both of you about diversity and inclusion mm. i'm for it so <laughs> i mean i don't mean to brag you're my boss so that's good to know <laughs> yeah. um, so diversity and inclusion has been this clarion call in tech for years now and i think certainly it's something that people are very excited about there's i would say there's even a whole sort of cottage industry around it at this point mm -hmm. but Companies are not sort of, they're not talking the talk. They're not walking the walk. Mm -hmm. Matt, you mentioned it about EEO1 reports. Anil, mm -hmm. you touched on it briefly in your talk. They're just not doing better overall as it relates to recruitment, as it relates to hiring, or as it relates to retention. So what do you think needs to happen in this industry in order for substantive change to happen along those lines? <laughs> a couple things. The people talking about it would have to mean it would be a starting point. And, and most don't. And I think the EEO-1 reports are a really good example. So these are federally mandated reports that publicly traded companies have to do, report on who makes up their companies. And the wildest shit about this is Google, as a publicly traded company, just didn't do them for like a long time, for like 10 years. They're like, and it's not like, oh, teacher, uh, my dog ate my homework, whatever. They're just like, nope, nope. And it wasn't until they were going to get sued about it. And then people inside started reporting their numbers independently as employees that they started doing this. And that is like, you can't even argue that you're working in good faith at that point, right? You are hiding your numbers, period, like that point. And that should have been the reckoning. Now, and then they sort of papered over it and they have good ability to communicate. And pretty much every company in the Valley was doing this. But there was a, there was a shift where all of a sudden they're like, all right, now we're proudly publishing our numbers. And our goal is to increase things by 1% over the next four years, if we're lucky, for black representation and 0.02% for you know, Latinx representation. And I'm like, come on, you're the same people that are like, we can get a reasonable rocket to go to the moon and come back. Or you're the same people saying we're going to get a permanently flying drone providing Wi-Fi over disconnected parts of the world. And they're like, can you hire in absolute numbers six black women instead of four? And they're like, ah, that's, that's too hard. And I don't buy it. So I don't think they mean it. You got anything to add to that, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, as a developer, whenever I see a bug in the code, I want to fix that. And, you know, when the, uh, these tech firms, when uh, there's a problem on their platform or, you know, there's a server outage or something, they fix it. Because, mm -hmm. and if they wanted to fix the DNI issue, it wouldn't exist. It doesn't make you more money, it doesn't translate to you getting more people on your platform. So the incentives aren't there. Well, it would. It actually does translate to more users, right? I, don't, that, I mean, I don't think so. I don't think, honestly, 
It's going to stop things like uh, Snapchat having a blackface filter. It'll stop <laughs> things like that. Yeah. But it's not going to... Yeah, hopefully. It, like, you not don't know... Wood. The code that the code that's written by a black woman with dreadlocks and a, a gender nonconforming awesome person with purple hair and a dog collar like <laughs> that code runs just as great as white male cis code right and I think like at the end of the day until we start our own things right that look like us we're not gonna. This isn't a problem that's worth solving to people who don't care about it. Yeah, right? there's not a, there's not a pain. Well, I, I take a look at actually to the point mm-hmm. of earlier about boycotts. Delete Uber was powerful enough that it cost Travis's job, right? And that's not to say there were that much economic impact, but it had the combination of economic impact and PR <coughs> impact and all, all the sort of things that hit together. And also he was vulnerable because of the other cultural issues. Come. So it was like perfect yeah. storm. You do this thing. Who's going to get fired? For not following through on DNI commitments, right? Like that's actually where it's at. And can they be fired? I mean, in the case of Snapchat, like I'm sorry if you own Snapchat stock, but like you don't have any voting rights. They managed to go public with a company where you have no rights as a shareholder to do anything. So the odds of them fixing inclusion problems at that company, even if you're like a shareholder who's like I'm, I own your stock and I care about this issue, is zero. Like they, they're only going to change if they want to. And I look at this of like our company where we work, right? Like to an approximation, as recently as five years ago, the company was pretty much 100% white men, right? Very talented ones, but it was not an inclusive organization, period. And we're shifting and we have a lot of work to do. But I mean, you all hear me around the office, like this is a thing we're going to do and we're going to spend time on it. And we're going to set goals and we're going to get to proportional representation on our staff in the US and I'm accountable to it. That's not that hard to say. The same is true. Like we're going to grow our users and we're going to try to make more money. Guess what? We're a company. That's what we do. The difference is it's not any more outrageous for me to say we have those goals and to say I'm going to be accountable to them than it is about our business goals or about being good at design or any of the things that companies want to do. But how many tech CEOs will say it and say, uh, they'll say, you know, we're screwing up. We're not doing a good enough job. We really want to try hard this year. And look, we sponsor this conference or whatever, right? Like, I mean, I think that tends to be the, like, that's how you kick it down the road. And that's why I say, I think it's a lie. Cause like, if you were trying to delay the conversation and put it off, what would you do? You'd be like, look over there. We like, you know, we did the thing. We bought t-shirts for somebody. And so now we're good. Final question. And then we'll, we'll kick it out to the audience for Q and A. Now let's go ahead and address the inevitable and the audience. You are actually all a part of this. We're preaching to the choir here. Mm. Both of us here, I mean, I think everyone here kind of knows the ramifications and the instances of things that are happening on the Internet. Otherwise, you would not be here tonight, I would think. How do we take the messages from this event and spread it to those who not only need to hear it the most, but those who it affects the most? Well, I would say when you walk out of the here, you take the elevator, you hit the street, just text someone from your phone. When you see a friend, just talk to them. Like, I, I was at this thing yesterday, and it's the one thing I remembered from it, or the one thing that impacted me. It's about those human relations, you know? Like, I think, like, if, if AOC, you know, can have the power to, to get Amazon out of Long Island City, then you have the power to, in your social network, in your family, in your friends, get them to care just a, a one degree more. And that's all we can do. I think that, that that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think any movement is one-on-one, door-to-door, person-by-person, face-to-face. It's it's a ground game. And it's, just, it's the same as like any candidate you've ever cared about. If you've knocked on doors 
and been that person that like nine people in a row slam the door and you're like, I'm going to, this one's the one they're going to be excited and they're going to actually take the card when I hand it to them or whatever it is. It's the same thing. If you're saying, you know, I care about the impact the tech is going to have on people's lives. You got to have those conversations and you got to have them over and over and over. And most of them are not going to be initially productive and you got to still like stick with it. It's not glamorous. It is not like there's no revelatory moment where somebody's like, I see the light. You know what I mean? It's just like this, it's the rest of our lives actually and every day for the rest of our lives. So that's the fun. Yay. (laughs) It's a lot of work. Uh, give them both a round of applause. Thoughts of love And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Anil Dash, to Matt Mitchell, to Forms at Civic Hall, to the entire team at Glitch, and of course, thanks to you for listening and for downloading and for spreading the word about Revision Path. Without you, there is no revision path. So really, thank you so much. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries, and it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. So if you like influencing strategy and working alongside technical leads and engineers on a product from start to finish, then Facebook design might be for you. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, Check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out today at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Select music used throughout this episode is courtesy of Chill Hop Music. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.